My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In today's episode, I consider the relationship between commerce and international law. Commerce itself is made of two elements. On one hand, we have resources, and the other, markets. So many of the international rules that have been developed have been about providing then international legal subjects with access to resources and access to the markets where the commodities could be bartered. I explore this relationship with a discussion on cotton. Cotton was the very first global manufacturing industry and is in fact the source of many of the laws that we have today, laws that pertain to trade, to banking, to finance, um, and even to intellectual property. Now what's amazing is to read these international lawyers at these different points of time, and each one came up with a justification for commerce from within their specific field. So Francisco de Vitoria, one of the founders of international law, 16th century theologian and jurist, he's the one who Christopher Columbus asked the question to, what can I do with the natives? And he came up with a theological answer to it. This use gentium, this was ideological, and it was based in theology. And the just war that I said, you can wage war if you happen to be a Christian. So commerce was mandated by God. And the piece that you were to read for today by Porus speaks then about that providential character of commerce. Commerce mandated by God. Fast forward. Grotius, Hugo Grotius, I said to you, he's the lawyer, the international lawyer, crafted the law of the seas. He worked for the Dutch East India Company, worked for the Dutch East India Company, and this being in the 17th century said that it is necessary to maintain the freedom of the seas so that the Dutch can build up their economic power by acquiring the resources and accessing the markets in South and East Asia. A mercantile approach. Francisco de Vitoria is a theologian, but he's a jurist. And the question then was what to do with the natives. To answer the question briefly, prior to de Vitoria, we dealt with the natives based upon divine law. And divine law distinguishes between believers and non-believers, meaning Christians and non-Christians. De Vitoria comes in and says, no, it is not about that because this is outside the realm of Christianity. What we are dealing with outside the realm of Christianity is based upon the law of nations, jus gentium. Now that in itself was a novel creation in that there was no use gentium prior to de Vitoria. He is the one who came up with this construct. So it appears then that what he's doing is separating religiosity from law. He's creating a secular international law. And yet, 
toward the end of his construct, he loops around and the question then becomes, what about those people who do not abide by the rights to settle, the rights to trade, those who are not hospitable, those who resist engaging in commerce with the Spaniards? And the answer is war. They are now in breach of international law, so the Spaniards are justified in waging war against them. And he uses rather brutal language and mentions genocide and enslavement and things of the sort that can be done. Now, when challenged on that, he says, okay, but what if we then were to violate the rights to settle and to trade? So if, say for example, the Muslims who we just routed, what if they were to return and say, hey, we read your lectures on international law, we endorse this Euskentium, and we're going to settle Spain, and you have to be hospitable towards us. So his answer then ends up being very telling. He says, no, oh, no, no. Only Christians can wage a just war, meaning only Christians can avail themselves of Euskentium. So this is where we see him separate, and you're at least stretching the relationship between religiosity and law, but then it proves to be a bit of an elastic band and it snaps right back into place. Grotius comes at it from a mercantile perspective. Adam Smith, who I've mentioned to you before, the Scotsman, he comes at it from an anthropological perspective. Human nature, the right to own, the right to trade, all of these are in human nature. This is how societies evolve. So we have Vittoria making a theological argument in support of commerce, Grotius making a mercantile argument in support of it, Smith anthropological, David Ricardo follows and makes a similar one, and then in the end in the 20th century we have Milton Friedman who comes along and makes a scientific argument. And notice now how we have a division within universities. You have the political scientists, political economists on one side, and the economists on the other. And the economists study economics from a scientific perspective. That has much to do with the work of Milton Friedman. And now it wasn't just about human nature in the way that societies have evolved. It wasn't purely anthropological. There was actually a biological element to it then. This is science in the way economics operate. But in all instances, they're arguing in favor of commerce, of economic growth. They are treating these as sacrosanct. This is what all of us engage in. This is our motivation, our aspiration. And the law must be structured in a manner to support those aims. Now this is where I ask you the question, and which allows us to move then to the second part, where we'll deal with cotton, where I ask the question and I say, okay, where is the law in all of this? Where is the law? Now I mentioned use gentium, rights to settle, rights to trade. And I say, okay, settle because it links to resources. Trade, that has to do with markets. Both of these unite in creating then a marketplace for commodities. And that is why I want us to consider 
cotton. Because cotton was, as I said, the very first global manufacturing industry. Now, how did it come about? Now, what is cotton? Cotton is a subtropical plant. It's a subtropical plant. It's a subtropical plant that even just around this time when international law is developing, is utilized across three continents. So if you were to look at the equator and move just north of the equator, you find the perfect climate for the growth of cotton. It doesn't grow south of the equator, except for Peru, and it doesn't grow too far north of that sliver. So you find cotton being grown in Mesoamerica, and across the Caribbean. You see it in North Africa and just below the Sahara Desert. You see it across then the Middle East, in India and into China. But that is the ribbon that encircles the globe where cotton can be grown. And so when Christopher Columbus arrives in the Caribbean, when ultimately the conquistadors make it to Mesoamerica, what do they find? They find the cotton plant. Now the cotton plant is used to produce thread. And thread is used to produce textiles. Now what do we do? We take this cotton plant, we spin this cotton plant that gives us thread, we weave these strands of thread together and that gives us textile. Tailoring is another matter. So what you are wearing now has been tailored. But at the foundation of what you are wearing, in most instances, is cotton. And this was utilized on these continents because it was cost effective. Now, think if you were in England, what were you wearing at the time? You were wearing wool on one hand, potentially linen, Possibly flax, if you had gotten it from elsewhere, because you don't grow flax in England. Or hides, so leather. But all of those are labor-intensive, resource-intensive. To have more wool, I need more sheep. To have more leather, well, I need more bovine. But with cotton, cotton can be grown across that ribbon. And this is what is fascinating about the cotton industry as it developed. It developed primarily at the household level because cotton can be grown by individuals, by small communities. So households, in addition to having their own crops, would also grow a patch of cotton. Return to what I said to you before about the distinction between an accumulation-based economy and a subsistence-based economy. An accumulation one, I am accumulating. We have no definition for enough. But in a subsistence one, I am doing it for use. So what do people need? Well, they need food to eat. They need shelter and they need clothes. These are the basics. And so it was possible then for individuals to grow cotton and to grow food and they would engage in what is known as intercropping and in fact, the intercropping was good for producing the fertility of the soil, for enhancing it. And so at the household level, they are growing cotton, they are growing other crops, 
But cotton, one of the main advantages to it is that it can be stored for months. So you gather all your cotton and you put it in storage and then you tend to your other responsibilities. And then you spin a little bit of it and you spin a little bit more and then maybe you weave some. But there was a type or there is a type of autonomy associated with the growth of cotton because I don't have to sell it immediately. That is very different from sugar. Sugar, the sugar cane, once it is chopped, must be processed immediately. Otherwise, it begins to break down and it cannot be used. So it must be processed immediately, which meant then that in terms of the sugar industry, you had the plantations, but you also, it was essential to have the manufacturing very close to the plantations. It wasn't the same with cotton. Because cotton can be picked, spun and woven much later, cotton in its raw form can be transported. And that obviously came to have a significant impact on where the manufacturing of cotton would take place. So consider then the commodity chain as it existed on these three continents. Households, imagine each one of you as a household, each one of you is growing some cotton. Each one of you within your family, within your extended family obviously, within your community, are spinning it and are weaving it. You are wearing then some of the textiles that someone within your community ultimately tailors. And then you are selling some to merchants. Merchants are traveling through and they are buying up whatever leftover textiles they are. They're not buying the leftover cotton because that's of no use to them. They are not spinners, they are not weavers. They themselves are merchants, so they're interested in the textiles. And the tailoring, as I said, is separate. The tailoring happens place, happens in situ, wherever you happen to be. That is where the tailoring is taking place. So this is the model in operation in Mesoamerica, in the different parts of Africa where cotton is grown, also in India and also in China. So where is the law in this? And consider this then through an international economic law lens. And even though you do not know much about international economic law yet, there are still some elements that you're familiar with. So thinking about this from a proprietary perspective, as remember the rational system, we are thinking then we need resources on one hand and we need markets on the other. So considering cotton through those lenses, what does it look like? What do I want to own if I want to engage in if I want to participate in the cotton industry. What do I need? You need land, why? What? So I need land to plant cotton. What? All right, once I've planted the cotton, am I done? No, what else do I need? Cotton pickers. Ah, I need cotton pickers. Meaning I need farmers, or as they were at the time, peasants to work the land. Cotton is labor intensive. It has to be irrigated, it has to be picked, and as I said, it requires a lot of intercropping, meaning I need to move it from one plot to the next. So I'll grow it here, this year, and then I'll shift, maybe 100 meters down, the year after. So I've already determined that from a legal perspective, I need land, 
So I need, there's a right to ownership associated with that. But then I also need labor. But these are households that are doing it. And they're doing it themselves. So which other law does it trigger? I come in as a merchant and I say, hey, listen, maybe I take some of those textiles off your hands. Which law kicks in at that point? Contracts. Because I have to contract for the transaction, for the purchase of these goods. And now I'm taking this from the inner part of, so I'm in the Indian subcontinent, and I'm inland, and I'm moving it towards the waterfront, towards the coastal cities. Why am I going there? Why to the coastal cities? Markets. Who is in these coastal cities? Merchants, precisely. Merchants who are coming in from other parts of Asia, and what do, how do they travel in the 16th and 17th and 18th century? They travel by ship. Law of the seas, probably relevant. Shipping laws, potentially relevant. Which flag are you flying as a ship? What are other ships permitted to do when they encounter your ship at sea? When I dock at the port in this city, this coastal city, do I do so by right? Or are there any rules that I have to follow? And who has established those rules? The merchants that are bringing these textiles in from these different parts of the land and who are now selling them to these merchants who are coming in from abroad. So local merchants are selling it to not transnational, transoceanic merchants. Because we're not thinking about the nation state just yet. The nation state only emerged as part of the Treaty of Westphalia. So it's only Europe that is operating as a nation state. And it's not even Europe that is sending, and we'll see this shortly, Europe is not even sending national ships to these waters. It's private corporations that are flying an English flag or a Dutch flag or a French flag, but private companies, the Dutch East India Company, the English East India Company, the French East India Company. These are not crown corporations, these are private companies that are flying a national flag. So, these local merchants who are selling these goods, do they get to do so willy-nilly? Or are there certain taxes established by the local rulers? And these other ships that are coming in from abroad who are bringing their goods into the country. Which goods are they permitted to bring? Are there any rules as to the goods they can bring? Can they bring anything they like? And this is where we begin to think of tariffs and prohibitions and so on and so forth. Now if I'm growing cotton and I'm very successful, maybe I want to grow more cotton, which means I need more seed. And maybe I want to improve the quality of the production. And in addition to that, when I'm spinning and I'm spinning by hand, maybe I realize that spinning by hand is time consuming. And I want to develop a spinning wheel so I can accelerate and then spin more thread. And a variety of technologies emerge. And so in this process, there are now, it is now essential for some regulations related to the techniques, what today we refer to as process patents, 
the seed, what today we refer to as product patents. But then I also need some rules related to the technology. Is that technology itself protected? Can it be transferred from one place to another? There are many rules in international economic law that pertain specifically to that. And then, as I said to you with regards to the tariffs and the regulations and the prohibitions, well, all of these are trade rules. So consider this, and I'll conclude on this and we'll take a brief break. Consider this. We are starting then, the world itself is the way it is. Now that we have developed transoceanic travel, Europeans are traveling to other parts of the world. It begins with Christopher Columbus going into the Caribbean. It's quickly followed by Vasco da Gama, who goes around the African continent and ends up in South Asia. Prior to that, Europeans are wholly dependent on land travel or on other <clears throat> merchants, and there were other merchants from Asia, from the Middle East, who had already completed that route. And so Europeans, in accessing these resources, were dependent upon others. But now that they have the means, the capacity, to circumnavigate the globe, they now have a means by which they can access the resources in the lands of others. But that raises two questions. One, are these the lands of others? Can I not just take the resources? And we've seen answers were proposed at the time, answers that resulted in the world that we have today. But beyond that, Mesoamerica, Africa, Asia, cotton is being grown, cotton is being manufactured, cotton is being traded. Where is Europe in any of this? Well, Europe is nowhere to be found. Why? What did I say? The ribbon where cotton grows is south of Europe. There is no possibility of growing cotton in Europe. So Europe is on the periphery. Europe is a bystander. And what we see in the second half of today's lecture is how Europe used international economic law as a way to gain control over the cotton industry.